Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Why should CBUS members have insurance through CBUS Super? Maybe it's because we understand the risks of working in our industries. Maybe it's because we offer cover that is tailored to protect building and construction workers, even those working at heights. Or maybe it's all of these reasons. So why not consider CBUS Super? CBUS, for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, visit cbussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. This is the Final Word Cricket Podcast with Adam Collins. That's me. He's Jeff Lemon. It's another one of my late night recording sessions. It's about midnight here in London. It's very <laughs> late early night in the morning. <laughs> early morning for Jeff. The reason we're recording at this time of uh, day and night is because the test match finished today at Old Trafford. The series concluded with England winning 2-1. Stuart Broad picked up his 500th test wicket along the way and his 501st for good measure, the, the wicket that sealed the series win for the hosts. Uh, we'll, we'll come to that. Uh, we'll also come to an interview that we've got with Warren Dutram, who's the chief executive of Cricket Ireland, ahead of uh, their three ODI series against England starting on Thursday, which I'm heading down to into the bubble, the biosecure bubble at Southampton. But uh, before getting into all that, g'day, Jeff. Hello, Adam, and uh, welcome to Late Night Listening, uh, the final word of... <laughs> Audio uh, collections for your listening pleasure. We'll start off with a uh, collection of sound effects from Michael Hussey's cover drives. (laughs) This one's going out to Dean and Bernice in Brayside. I'm sure you've got a collection of Mike Hussey's cover drives on your computer somewhere, Jeff. Um, Joked before about the sort of stuff you collate. Well, I, I have, I have, um, yeah, a, a collection of things on my computer that would not be of interest to anyone else if, you know, my untimely demise led to somebody sifting through my hard drive, put it that way. If there was an untimely demise on, and I was able to sift through your hard drive, mm. the thing I would take would be your screenshot folder. Yep. Which is beautifully catalogued. I mean, I take a lot of screenshots of drunk 
broken idiots on Twitter reply guys at sort of two in the morning after four bottles of red. I have those kind of screenshots which are littered through my, uh, you know, photos history, but you're far more sophisticated than what you keep and you've been cataloguing them for years and years. So if if I if this were to happen, and I and I had a crack into your computer as mm. well, that's what I'm going for. Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, there's, I mean, there are there are the screenshots you keep and the ones you don't. Um, there are the, the things that will remain hilarious in years to come uh, and the things that are just for the moment so you know you've got to know what to what to hold on to and what to let go Uh, jeff the west indies fly back to uh, the caribbean at 6 a.m so about six hours from now that they are off that's it their chartered flight returns home um, after 51 days the majority of them uh, in the hotel at Old Trafford. They spent, of course, a couple of weeks at Southampton as well, but the bulk of their time because mm. they were based at Manchester for their warm-ups and their uh, their isolation period and quarantine beforehand. It's a mighty effort. So, uh, I mean, I think off the top we should just simply repeat what a lot of people have said of, and congratulate them and everyone that's been involved in that operation for what has been, you know, without overdoing this point, without them, England cricket would be in a world of pain right now. And, of course, for consumers of the sport around the world we wouldn't have had three I wouldn't say this test match was captivating but across the series it, it, there was there was tons of interesting threads some exciting cricket some old-fashioned test cricket as well uh, and it was just so great to have it back and they will be some of those players will be waking up in in years to come just thinking that they're back in the hotel at Manchester you know just for a brief moment <laughs> in the morning going did I ever get out you know welcome to the hotel at Old Trafford <laughs> um, it's you know, you can you can check out, but you can never leave. So they're, they're, a part of them will always be in in Manchester. And as you said, I think they've they've given all of our hearts a little lift just just having an you know actual test series to to talk about um, and and something to I mean just to have that feeling of being able to it, it's it's probably just I don't know one of those Pavlovian responses by now, but as soon as you turn cricket on and it's happening and it's live and there's that quiet, calm, sort of slow, even pace of the middle of a test match. It's just like, ah, okay, okay, things are all right just now. So, you know, it, it was nice to get that back. Yeah, and after sort of having had a new cycle, which has like been in overdrive a few months ago, just I think Ben Jones pointed out on Twitter today that it felt like 18 months had elapsed between the first day and the fifth day of the test match. And like that's how it's meant to feel. You're meant to kind of experience, uh, you know, the overnight periods, which, you know, the expectation from evening to morning and, and so on. And we had that, of course, and that was added to by a rained out day. And again, we'll, we'll come to all of this when we talk about the test in a little bit. I mentioned we go from red ball to white, which is part of the reason we've got Warren Dutram uh, on the final word today, who's the chief executive of Cricket Ireland. He's been in that gig since 2006 and achieved a, a remarkable amount uh, in that time. And as he says to us, has a lot more to achieve before he'll be finished. But it's also the start of the ICC's World Cup Super League, as they're calling it. So the the competition which will run between World Cup cycles, there'll be 13 teams mm. playing, um, the 12 full member nations of the ICC, plus the Netherlands who qualified um, for this uh, iteration of the tournament, and the top seven teams will qualify automatically for the next 10-team World Cup in 2023. So relevant as all that is, we were mostly fixated a couple of weeks ago on the final word, Jeff, about the fact that it's the first big men's uh, competition which is going to have the front foot no ball adjudicated by the TV umpire, something we've been pushing 
wishing for on the show for ever and ever and ever. And, and that collided beautifully this morning on social media with another topic that we've returned to time and time again, which is running out the non-striker, man-catting, if you like. And uh, thanks to uh, Ravi Chandran Ashwin, uh, my Twitter account, uh, well, it's still uh, a shambles with his 10 million people having essentially dunked on me for not realising that when I was expressing my love for him being the man-cad monarch, it wasn't in jest, it wasn't a taunt, it was most uh, most sincere uh, uh, observation on my part and, and kind of all hell broke loose. But I love the idea that Ashwin um, is touching on our, our favourite points. Well, I, I mean, for one thing, people online not understanding things is, is, is par for the course. You, you know, you, you can literally put up a a post that says drinking a glass of water is good and people will be like why do you hate water you know like, they, just, they just won't listen to it um, so if they can't understand your love heart emojis then what are they supposed to do but yeah it, it, it was a beautiful synthesis of the yes. two of the two things with with Ashwin saying well look everybody gets pressured out of running out the non-striker because of you know the, the weird reaction that happens to it in which case the 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 camera checking for the no ball should also be checking to see if the non-striker's out of their crease or not. And if they're not, they're, they should be short, like calling a run short. Well, they haven't run the full distance. So um, why don't you do that while you're at it um, and, and just work out how many non-strikers are starting from outside of the area, which, you know, there is, there is something to be said for the proposal, um, but, but also something more to be said for the fact that he's like, I think I'm just going to poke this nest of uh, annoying insects that might sting me. But like, just gonna keep, just keep poking, just have another poke, um, and, and, and 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 why not? You know, it, it's they're insects that should be poked. You know, there are some that should be left alone, but in this case, poke away. Yeah, it was great. I mean, it, it was sort of a five or six tweet thread, which yeah, I jumped on the back of and then he jumped on the back of me. And in the end, he was sort of apologised for um, dunking on me because he realised that I was his friend and I was his ally uh, when it comes to <laughs> running out the non-striker. His point, by the way, was that it should be about Bill Brown, um, who, of course, was the man that um, the new man can mm. run out a couple of times. In which, the, we, which we've discussed that before. The, at great the, the notion of And the notion of browning people that yes. you say, oh, well, you know, Joss Butler got browned because it's, it's, it's all about the batter and not about the bowler. Yeah, that's right. And we did an entire episode called the Vinu Mancat Appreciation Hour, I think it was called, Jeff, we titled it, which was before last year's World Cup. Appreciation Society. I Appreciation believe. Society, right, you are. And that was uh, after Ashwin and, and Butler had their incident Oh, I guess it was last April uh, at the IPL. So um, I, I directed him towards yeah, that meeting. As well. I like to think it was a meeting of minds. Yeah, yeah, it was a meeting of the mind of someone who likes wandering off down the crease um, and someone who doesn't like that. Where I think he and I diverge is that he doesn't like it being called a man cat, and I didn't like it being called a man cat for, for a long time either. I thought it sort of denigrated the name of the great all rounder, but. I've evolved on this a bit. My thinking is that it's never going to change, no matter what we say on the final word or anyone in world cricket says to try and make it about running out the non-striker. It's always going to be called the man-cad. So why don't we use it as an opportunity to uh, celebrate his career and to honour his legacy and his contribution to the game by, by talking of it in a positive tone rather than the sort of the negative connotations which have always come hand in hand with running out the non-striker. So, um, and I put that to him, that this is a chance for us to, yeah, to, to get behind legacy of Mancad rather than um, people using it to talk him down. 
Well, I, I suppose all of these positions are open to to change and and to flux. You know, but my initial response to the idea of, of the camera check is that I'd like the non-striker to be free to wander around wherever they want as long as they accept the risk of, of doing so because the, the striker can do that. They can bat two metres yep. out of their crease if they want. They're just not likely to do it if the keeper's standing up to the stumps, for instance. Um, but, you know, you can, you can go down the wicket whenever you want to as the striker. So you should have that option as a non-striker as long as you can face consequences. And, and the way that the sort of moral weirdness of the game has been structured is that you can do it and also you're not supposed to face any consequences. So that's, you know, that's, that's where it, it becomes sticky. Well, it's like stealing a base to use the sort of... Uh cliched way of interpreting that you know you hear people say it from time to time if if non-strikers are willing to chance their hand and go out of the crease before the ball's bowled that's fine mm. if they want to try and steal a couple of metres in the same way that a, a baseball runner yep. would, would do so but the stigmatisation would that be the right word of, of running out the yep. non-striker would mean that they would be uh, susceptible to being run out and that would just be that uh, whereas at the moment we go through this fucking every time this the hoops we jump through and the and, mm. the, and the contortions of, of various different former players um, about trying to justify Particularly it. England for some reason saying we would never do that and I'm like, yeah. just please, I just really want a team to absolutely take the piss. Because well, if they're saying they'd never do it, we'll start halfway down, you know. Like well, just start halfway down. What are they going to do? Well, this is kind of like the argument. I think Peter Miller, going back some time now, used to advance was that uh, associate nation teams, or should I say nations where they don't have a deep and rich history of cricket, they're far more inclined to play around with that because both on both sides of the ledger in that their, their batters are more inclined to, to take risks and, and their bowlers are more inclined to flick the bales off in that instance. So uh, maybe it'll be um, a, a sort of a revolution driven from that part of our cricketing community. But yes, it was a fun couple of hours on Twitter this morning um, uh, uh, dealing with all that, which as I say, I'm still kind of doing with it now. The occasional hate-filled message is spilling into my mentions, but I'm doing the best I can just to, just to ignore it and not get too involved. Although I did take the bait a couple of times, but you know, I'm only human. <laughs> well, it does bring to mind the fact that we've never had an Indian cricketer on this show because they're basically impossible to access given the <laughs> incredibly tight restrictions around, spun around everybody who's ever previously played for India, might play for India in the future and whatever, but by their media setup. So the campaign starts here. Get Ravi Ashwin to come on the final word and chat about this subject specifically because basically he's our patron saint. He's combining our two main interests of automated no-ball adjudication and non-striker runouts in one beautiful package. Uh, and, and, you know, to, to lure him on, why don't we award him the coveted Seabus Super Performer of the Week yes. for his work in, in the service of everything that's happening at the bowler's end. We're always concentrating down the end of the striker. Why shouldn't we be paying more attention to the other end? That's what Ravi Ashwin says. And, and that's the sort of holistic balance we need in our lives. We need to be looking at both ends. Uh, that's what we don't do enough. So, you know, but that, that's, that's my suggestion, um, of course. CBUS, make sure that all profits go to members, not shareholders. And he is a member of the Bowlers Club who were who so often robbed of runs as, as he laid out in his, in his logic. So, you know, Ravi, <laughs> head off to cbussuper.com.au. <laughs> Remember that past performance is uh, not necessarily a reliable indicator of future performance. I noted that he uh, was talking a lot about the 
the the line, the front line being mm. um, the possession of both bowler and batsman, and that parody, that egalitarian line, sort of. Mm. I think he had a hashtag or two um, littered through his tweets and that manifesto earlier too. But I, I like to think that in that spirit uh, of a, of a member based superannuation fund that he would love the idea mm. that he's been made the CBA Super Performer of the Week. Jeffrey, oh, he, he'll be, he'll have it on his wall. I'm sure he'll uh, just draw it. You can there's there's no official trophy, but you can just write it yourself on a napkin or something and, and just just pop that up on the wall. That's that's endorsed by us on the final word. Also endorsed is uh, telling Ravichandra and Ashwin to uh, come on the final word. You're spot on, Jeff. Patron saint sounds good to me. So if if you are corresponding with him, say hey. You know that guy you were talking to on Twitter the other day. Go on his podcast. They'll they'll give you a fair airing. Indeed, they'll give you a they'll give you more than a fair airing. It'll be a meeting of minds. It'll be a high. It'll be an audio like. parade. You know, it'll be it'll we'll we'll bear him through the streets of Internet City. Right, Jeff. Uh, before we get to the test match uh, that that was completed today at Old Trafford, there was uh, some slightly odd news. I, well, that's how I interpreted it anyway uh, on the eve of the test match, which was that this was the last time the Wisden Trophy was to be played for. So that's been in, in existence since 1963. Leary Constantine was involved in uh, the idea which uh, reflected 100 years of the Almanac. Uh, and there were a number of pieces written about this at the start of the series. So Mike Atherton, Andy Bull, Lawrence Booth, who of course is editor of the, of the good book. He was kind of responding to the idea that they might rename it um, after Leary. And of course, um, Viv Richards and Ian Botham were raised as well as former cricketers who the trophy could be named after. And that's what they did. So the ECB on Test Eve announced that the Wisdom Trophy was no more and it'll now be called the Botham Richards, or maybe Richards Botham, I'm not sure which way, but in any case, that it'll be named after the the two greats uh, of the, well, I guess the 70s, 80s and 90s, uh, who were, of course were... <laughs> Great classic hits. Uh, yeah, the, the, the double TFM of cricket, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> But, and, of course, teammates forever and a day at Somerset from the mid-70s onwards uh, until the mid-80s. So, I mean, and, you know, the best of friends and so on, which was uh, a point well made uh, by both of them. But it did jar all the same, uh, I, I suppose, Jeff, in the week that we're, well, not just the week, but in the year, in the in the season, in the summer, that we're um, spending so much time, uh, we're investing so much time in, in the Black Lives Matter uh, discussion uh, that... I mean, literally in the interview that Botham was doing to mark the fact that he'd uh, had this new trophy named after him, he was on the All Lives Matter bandwagon. And uh, should we be surprised? Not really. Not surprised. It That line was rolled out, as you said, in that interview, which is, you know, which as, as we've discussed on the show before, is a, a kind of dog whistle to people saying, well, this, this movement for to address racial inequality isn't actually that important because why why are we focusing on one group of people when you know everybody's important that's that's the sort of derailing nature of, of the kind of thing that gets said and it was peculiar in that you know this was this was an interview given to the daily mail which was obviously you know very inclined to try to give the best possible view of of both of them in the interview while also sort of flagging to, to their readership that it's okay. You know, he's, 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 he's in our general sort of person rather than, than somewhere else. So there was, 
there was the kind of stuff you come across quite a bit where, you know, so this is a quote from Botham that says, I said throughout my career, I don't care if a guy comes from Mars and he's blue, it's the person you meet and bond with. And he's talking about his friendship with Richards. And mm. of course, that's good. That's better than having the opposite point of view. But it's also that classic ignoring of the idea of what racism actually is. It's it's making racism a personal failing, saying that, you know, this is me just personally hating someone different rather than this is me existing in a system that benefits me to the exclusion of a whole group of other people. It's ignoring that society-wide nature of the problem. Um, so if it becomes a bad personal attribute rather than a systemic attribute, then it's much easier to say, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not racist. It, it's just, it, and all of this other stuff doesn't matter. So that's that's the way that he's setting it up. And then that, of course, kind of set up the fact that they were going to ask Viv Richards about this as well and have him basically go along with it, has he, have him say, yes, I agree with that phrase. But the way that he was framing it in his reply was in the context of standing up for black rights. So it was as though he was, uh, I don't know if he was being diplomatic or if he just wasn't fully across the the kind of insinuation behind that all lives matter statement. But he was saying, well, yes, it's true because of the events. His, his quote was, um, because of the events we've seen played out in America, this hate towards our colour, if we have respect for one another, these things wouldn't come into the equation. So he was agreeing, but in a way that didn't actually agree with the the, the thrust behind the original premise. Yeah, and look, we've got to be a bit careful here and to give as much of the picture as we can. So uh, both of them didn't go on the Rebel Tours of the 80s because of his, as he said at the time, his friendship with Richards uh, informed why he didn't go to South Africa and take the money like so many of his teammates um, did, which is obviously complicated history as well. And we've talked about that a little bit recently, but let's not get too deeply into that. But And, and as a consequence of it anyway, Botham's always sort of uh, presented himself as an anti-racist, if you like, as far as what his discussion around yeah. um, the West Indies sides of that era uh, and his respect for Viv and his friendship with him and, and so on. But it still hit a bung note, I think. It, it, for me, it was just like, why do that like it's not as though like there's a, a lack of uh, recognition of of, uh, of Botham's contribution on the cricket field it's been kind of done like we, we we get it like he was a, a fabulous all-rounder I mean the early part of his career he was the, the most important fast bowler in the world for a time there and then through the middle part of his career he he turned into you know an extraordinary all-rounder and and defined the generation and that's great uh, but it was also... A, a, it's a bit a, like giving Prince Philip a knighthood. You know, it's like, does he need one? Like, yeah. Aside from, the, aside from the optics and all the rest of it, what's it just didn't. It just didn't seem... Yeah, it didn't seem necessary. It felt like overkill or something like that. It felt as though, you know... And again, this isn't to sort of denigrate the friendship or denigrate the relationship and, and the contribution they both made, but, you know, the fact that Constantine uh, was uh, the, the link between um, the early West Indies sides... Um, his uh, progression through British life, which in and of itself is fascinating. Um, of course, the first black peer. 
and which of course is the chamber of the of the parliament that now Ian Botham is reportedly going into coincidentally as we talked about briefly last week on the final word uh, it was his idea to call it the Wisdom Trophy or he contributed to the thinking as to why it would be called the Wisdom Trophy back in 1963 it just felt like a no-brainer like that was such a much better option uh, than sort of reflexively going to the two best players uh, of their generation from sort of 30 or 40 years ago it was unnecessarily divisive around something that could have been yeah, it could have been lovely. This renaming could have been a great thing. It didn't need to have this sort of edge to it through the week, which, you know, a lot of us just roll our eyes so far into the back of our head um, that we're looking the other way. Uh, and that didn't feel like that was the, the right rein to pull from those making the decision. Well, it was also just inevitable, really, that Botham would come out with something that, that undermined the premise of the previous few weeks. You know, he's got a, a long history of comments against immigration and that sort of thing. And then coming out with this all lives matter line, which has been so broadly used by far right people to push back against the idea of equality. That's, that's something that he drops into his whether knowingly or not, um, drops. It couldn't be unknowingly now. It, could, it couldn't be unknowingly. I think, I think a month ago it may have been unknowingly. I think some people a month ago may have, may have said that phrase and not had a sense of it. But as if Ian Botham didn't hear what Michael Holding said a couple of weeks ago or any other uh, member of the black community, for that matter, inside our sport, he knew exactly what yeah. he was saying. There's no way he could have said that uh, not knowing how loaded it was based on what we saw at Southampton indeed just three or four weeks ago. And this is the weird thing where the, the the interview is definitely trying to make it difficult to criticise him around this. So this is, I, I just want to look at this particular paragraph as an actual quote. It says, later when Botham tells Sports Mail that all lives matter, a line with which Richards agrees, so they have to throw Viv Richards in there as if to, as cover to say, well, it's okay because a black man agrees with this. They go on to say, he does so not out of disrespect for the Black Lives Matter movement, but because he simply can't envisage a world in which one race places itself above another. For him, the very discussion seems a bit alien. That's the end of the quote. Let me just look at that for a second. He simply can't envisage a world in which one race places itself above the other. Well, he lives in one. What do you mean he can't envisage a world? It exists. We are in it. It is happening Every day, it has been happening every day for all of modern history and it's going to continue to happen until it's stopped. The phrasing of that also implies that something to do with Black Lives Matter is about one race placing itself above another in terms of a movement for the recognition of black lives being somehow too much, being wanting to take too much attention. There's that insinuation as well. Mm. And then it, it finishes off by saying that for him, the discussion seems a bit alien. Well, a discussion of racial inequality society-wide can be alien if you're lucky enough to not be affected by it day by day. And, you know, we're not and he's not. But it's that's what people talk about when they talk about white privilege is not having to face the consequences of racism day in, day out. So if it, if it is alien to you, well, you're in a very fortunate position. And then... It's just all the more jarring to have all of that set up against what Michael Holding said at the start of the series and which we'll hear from now. And when you say to somebody, black lives matter, and they tell you all lives matter or white lives matter, please, we black people know white lives matter. I don't think you know that black lives matter. So don't shout back at us about all lives matter. It is obvious. The evidence is clearly there 
that white lives matter. We want black lives to matter now. Simple as that. Always worthwhile listening back to that passage. Uh, Jeff, moving to the game itself, uh, mentioned off the top, Stuart Broad uh, picked up his 500th test wicket today, uh, became only the fourth seamer to reach that mark, 501 by the time he was done, picking up the final wicket of the test match. 10 for 67 across the two innings. Uh, some mm. ridiculous almost spells. The, almost Arthur Maley. Oh, 10 indeed. for 66 indeed, and all Very that. close. That's, that's, a, that's a very good point. Uh, he... Look, he, he was as good as I've ever seen him. Uh, and that shouldn't be surprising. Uh, he went from 400 to 500 wickets. This was in Vicious Peace today. Uh, at an average of 22 in seven different countries. So it's not as though this has been sort of some hometown exercise, um, which often Broad and Anderson get tagged with. He's improved his game consistently. He's just got better and better. And and the numbers bear that out as well as far as the, the mode of dismissal has been far more bold and league befores than there had been before 2017 and 2018. I think there's a, a line there which coincides, of course, with when he spent some time with Richard Hadley in New Zealand. And, and there's a number of different uh, reference points here. But Broad is just immaculate at the moment as a fast bowler. And to think that, I mean, the previous weekend... We were talking about the second test match last week that at one stage, I think he had none for 61. I don't know what his aggregated figures are after that, but it's probably like 16 for 100 odd. Uh, he's <laughs> been on the hottest of hot streaks uh, since that uh, since that moment in time. Of course, three innings, three wickets rather in both innings of the second test and then f- uh, six and four uh, here in the third. And you throw in the mix as well, 62 off 45, the third quickest half century um, for an England man ever in a test match, just 33 balls to bring up the mark. And I have to say for a while there, Jeff, I thought we were on for not only a century and a session, but the fastest England test hundred. And I think he would have got there had he uh, made it to a hundred the way he was playing. It was a it was a joyous performance, uh, the clear and obvious man of the match. I'm sure he was man of the series as well. I haven't seen this, but I have no doubt that he was. And, um, and, uh, and, and uh, yeah, I guess a an exciting way to leave what was yeah not a particularly brilliant final test but this was um, yeah such a, a lovely milestone for, for him to tick off and for everyone to enjoy today yeah I, I felt for him having to do it in an empty ground you know imagine like the the significance of the milestone I mean 500 wickets for any bowler is absolutely ridiculous there was you know what was it when when Truman got to 300 and they said will anyone break your record and he said well if they do they'll he'll be bloody tired yeah um you know the the fact that test cricket has gone beyond and beyond and beyond that mark the fact that there have been four quicks to do it in glenn mcgrath courtney walsh and james anderson the fact that broad's played 140 tests to get there you know that's if if those tests all went their full measure that's 700 days of test cricket that's like two years of your life yeah just being in the middle of a test match like actually not not leading up to it not preparing not recovering but during a test you spent two years playing a test match like that's, well, well there's two contrasting incredible. stats on this which i thought were quite good today so he's played the most amount of test matches to reach 500 wickets which stands to reason because he's you know been around for a long time and 140th test this week but only He's the third quickest in, uh, by balls delivered. So Anderson and McGrath bowled fewer deliveries to get to 
500 test wickets, but he got there quicker than Walsh and, and all the spinners, which would stand to reason. But but still, it, it's it's a it's an important point here that he's often bowled with Anderson, um, who who has been the, the attack leader. He's been the number two. It's it's kind of amazing mm. to think that the number two has also taken 500 in his career. And Michael Vaughan made the point in the segment that I do with him each night today that it would you know, uh, that they're probably now thinking to themselves, well, if Broad can overtake McGrath, then Anderson and Broad will be the top two seamers as far as wickets taken of all time. And that'll probably last for a fair while too. So, um, and, mm. and you look, it, it's fairly clear that Broad's got a fair bit of cricket to go. Yep every indication that Anderson's going to play on too. So, um, yes, they've, they've been rocking around together for 13 years, but there might be, I don't know, a, a couple more years possibly. And for Broad, as he was um, quick to remind everyone before this test match, he's 34 and Anderson's 38. Um, so he, he wants to keep going for a while. Yeah, maybe he's not number two anymore, maybe. Yeah. Who does number two work for? Um, he's He still looks like a baby. Like, he's still got that, you know, he's still... Boyish, they they like to <laughs> use that adjective because he really is. You know, I like he's he's honestly he's always looked like Draco Malfoy in probably the first Harry Potter movie rather than the seventh, where he'd become like weirdly tall and adolescent in those those last couple of movies where they were just desperately trying to rein in the hormones of all of these actors who they'd cast. But you know, he always yeah looked like looked like that kid wandering around, and he's still basically does so uh, you know it's been a bit of a journey with broad as 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 an australian like learning to appreciate him like have, getting over my my sort of original genetic antipathy towards english cricketers and then compounded with 2013 when you know it was it was not so much broad and the catch but just the general frustration of australia having such a good position in that Trent Bridge test and then being just completely wrung out of it by uh, by Broad and Bell in that partnership. I think I think that more than the actual uh, event itself sort of was, was what stayed with people and made them keep being angry at Broad later, you know, long <laughs> past when you would have expected to, to forget that off the field. So there's been a natural tendency from our side of the world to, to undercut Broad and Anderson, and particularly that thing about focusing on on their away records. Oh, look, they averaged thirty overseas instead of and, and twenty at home. Well, there's a lot of good bowlers who average thirty, um, and and that and that's also over an entire career. You know, in some some very inhospitable parts of the world to fast bowling, so it, it doesn't account for later improvements and all the rest of it. So there's a lot more to that story, and it's it's a pretty boring response these days when when people are rolling that out, it's like, it doesn't tell you a whole lot about the game or about the player. No, that's right. And and, and that longevity idea as well, that there's, you know, he's played 140 test matches now. Like you, you, The Truman example is a good one. Granted, um, there were fewer test matches to play back then, but I mean, it, that's that's hard yakka. So, uh, and of course, mm. Anderson's now played in excess of 150 test matches. I think he's up to about 153, 154, something like that. So, well played, Stuart Broad. His batting was... Um, I, I mentioned before, you know, thoroughly joyous Fun. that that half half century he made. And Jeff, you've watched him closely as a batter over the over the last five or six years that you've been covering this England team. But I, I found it particularly interesting uh, that he said that he was watching video of Shane Warne batting in the 2005 Ashes, and that was his inspiration for this summer. It was like the way yeah, Warne right. opened up the offside, especially through the air, and made so many runs, kind of through cover um, in 
Yeah, or relatively overcover. unorthodox. Yeah, overcover. You know, unorthodox fashion in 05 towards the end of his career. Of course, making yep. 250 odd runs in that in that famous series that Broad saw that as the and you can see it the way he sets up. He's I mean he's batting on not even leg stump but fourth stump I suppose you would call it outside yep. the leg stump in order to access more balls through the offside and. Let's remember, I mean, it's a long time ago, but he strikes the ball beautifully. So when he's able to open up that arc, I mean, it doesn't, it's not conventional, but why would you want to be conventional when the previous five years or so with the bat, he's been dreadful? But the last couple of test matches, indeed, um, you go back to South Africa, he made 40-odd not out in the final test there. So that was an interesting twist as well. I don't think we saw this coming. Well, I don't think it's ever been that far away. He made that 50 at the MCG in mm. 2017. He's he's always had that ability. You know, There have been quite a few 20s and 30s in there over that journey as well, which come in quick time. And you know, people talk about him being hit with the bouncer in 2014 and, and not being the same player who wanted to get in behind the line of the ball. And, and sure, that might be the case, but he's still able to score heavily despite not always being in control. And teams always bounce him. This is now what happens, is that as soon as he comes in, they start bowling short to him. But he can back away from that and just baseball it and if he top edges it somewhere there's a good chance it's flying away for a boundary you know either over backward square leg or or over third man and if he gets onto a fuller one they're going over cover or or over mid wicket so he's got that clean swing and, and he strikes the ball well which means that so maybe that means maybe once every five or six innings he comes off with 30 or 40 quick runs well you'd probably take that because you know that can be a that was a, a test defining contribution with the bat at the point where he makes those runs England were likely to be bowled out for under 300 at that yeah. stage and, and West Indies would have been in the game and instead West Indies were deflated they put the field back they had everybody um, back on the fence for broad it wasn't working they ended up going in very annoyed about how, how things had gone with England going well over 350 and then they weren't in the game from then on. They batted terribly both times. You know, they they just weren't a contest with the bat in in that second test match. And the fact that they couldn't muster the application on the last day to fight it out when there was rain forecast. I mean, about 10 minutes after the, the last wicket fell, there was rain tipping down at Old Trafford. Yeah, and, you yeah. Know, they might have been able to save the test match if they'd applied themselves. But, you know, it was it was astonishing watching that last day with almost seemed every West Indies player batting right back on his stumps and being pinged LBW just again and again and again. It was like, why why not get forward to these bowlers who have just got six of your teammates out the same way? Yeah, especially Wokes who took three leg befores in a row on the way to five for 50. I mean, kind of, uh, you know, the quiet one of the three, but uh, so effective in, in these conditions. I think he gets his wickets at 20 apiece in England or something silly like that. And England would also be uh, pretty glad that it was um, two of their... Less established players, I suppose, like Ollie Pope, who had a quiet series, who made 90-odd in the first dig. I know it was declaration batting in the second, but good timing for Rory Burns to get runs again. And then between times, uh, Josh Butler, who got a, a well-made 67. Um, <laughs> the, sorry, just the idea of Burns and Sibley doing declaration batting is, is hysterical in itself. But it worked pretty well, you see. I mean, it, 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 was, it, it looked pretty ridiculous at the very start with them batting conservatively. But as it turned out, like I think the view was, was that they would bat 
normally for one session and go nuts for the second to give themselves a chance to bowl for five or six overs in order to give their bowlers a rest. And it worked really well because Broad came out and took two wickets in two overs mm. uh, to start the, the second innings. He actually took six for 22 in seven overs across two innings on Sunday. It was all happening for Broad there. But um, y- yeah, you mentioned that the West Indies capitulation today. It was so predictable, wasn't it? And not uh, and that's no reflection on on the tourists. So again, I, I think um, uh, should be applauded for for the uh, for the way they went about it across these three test matches. But they were stuffed, and I, I get that. I mean, they knew they were probably going to lose today, and and they you know it just caught up with them. And Holder mm. didn't say that in as many words in his post play commentary, but he didn't exactly reject the the, the 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 accusation either that they were mentally drained, and that informs their collapse today. But more instructive, really, from Holder in his post-play commentary was the politics stuff. And this is where Holder's a great leader. I, I really admire the fact that he goes out there well-briefed, well-informed about what's going on in the, the broader West Indies cricket uh, ecosystem, and he'll, he'll talk about it. So Johnny Graves, uh, the chief executive of West Indies cricket, who, of course, is, is English and was the, the... I think he was the he was the comms boss at um, Surrey many, many years ago, and then, of course, his work mm. at the PCA. But... Uh, Graves made the pretty reasonable point during the week that why should all of the revenue from broadcasting go to the home team? And I'd never really thought about this too much before, but his point being that why wouldn't 20% say go to the visiting team? Remembering, of course, that the West Indies Mm. came here with a 50% pay cut and as Holder then went on to say, they make no money at at home unless they're playing Mm. England or India. Even when Australia come, the Windies don't make any money. Evidently, so yeah. also Holder was saying at the press conference. So if that's the case, when they play away from home, shouldn't it be that they get some of the pie uh, with countries who are making money off them? I think that's a perfectly reasonable argument in terms of revenue sharing. And uh, and and the other point that Holder made was that well, we've done our bit for English cricket. We've come out here and you know and, and done our time in the bubble. We expect England to come out before the end of 2020 and play a tour to help us. And I'm like. That's pretty bold because obviously there's no room in the future tours program for anything like that. But mm. yeah, it's almost as though that the quid quo pro uh, is being uh, asked for the, the 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 return of the favour that the West Indies have done the ECB. Now, whether that goes anywhere is, I mean, not really the point. It's the idea that the West Indies captain would come out there and, and say that. And again, I, I just admire him so much for for the way that yeah he 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 sees himself as sort of more than just the guy that you know, it decides what the batting order is and, and calls the bowling changes, but that he's got a bigger responsibility than that. And yeah, I think that was on show to that at the press conference. That balance of funding is something that's been talked about a bit in the last few years and is an issue ongoing. There's also that idea of, of pooling the rights, you know, selling the rights to all of the test playing teams in in some combined way or, or at least, you know, selling the combined rights of the seven or so teams who don't make a, an absolute truckload of money versus mm. the three that do. So that's, that's still ongoing, you know. The optimism about egalitarian financial arrangements in world cricket is... Um, always tempered at best but it at least at least the 
at least as they say, the conversation is happening. Yeah, and even even the fact that I'm neglected to mention this before, Holder was like calling out the big three. Even like he was naming the. I mean, that that, that to my way of thinking would have been dangerous for a representative mm. of the West Indies to be doing, especially a playing member of the side um, until COVID, really. And now they've got leverage and they should use it. They should take advantage of the fact that they're seen as the good guys of world cricket right now, rightly so, mm. and they should uh, they should be uh, uh, trying to clip the ticket themselves at some point and, and good luck to them in that pursuit. Uh, so, Jeff, England, 269-run victors today and they win the series 2-1, the first time they've come back from a, a deficit at home. Um, to win a series since the 1800s. So um, even though they've got a reputation for losing the first test match in terms of actually coming back and winning the thing, um, that Mm. was a a significant stat that came out today. Uh, Jeff, before we move to our interview, which is more about the white ball stuff and and, and the state of play in Irish cricket, I think we have time for a little bit of... Nerd Pledge. Uh, very quickly, the game of nerds, the game of pledges, the game we play with people on our patron page who support the show. Bless them by sending us a number of dollars and cents that relate to a cricketing number and we have to work out what it is. We will get into more depth on this on the weekend show, but just a couple of numbers to flirt with um, for the next couple of minutes. And the first of them came in from Alan Edgar, who very generously sent us seven dollars and five cents. Seven oh five. Alan's one of my best mates in cricket, uh, who I'm, right. in, I'm in an email chain with on a daily basis, uh, talking about the, the the whys and wherefores of the game. We used to be involved on, well, not involved. We used to talk daily on the Victor Trumper cricket board, which I was writing about uh, in the Guardian last week. So we're we're long term friends, and we go to a lot of gigs together as well. And so thus we talk a lot of shit um, either side of going to the concerts together. And mm. he he was adamant that his pledge of seven oh five is something that he and I have talked about before. But I can't for the life of me work it out. I mean, 7.05 was the uh, the score that India made against Australia in 2004 at the SCG. So Steve Waugh's final the, the, test the match. Dilker, no, no cover drives, double hundred. Yeah, I think, wasn't that the other one? Wasn't that the other double hundred that Tendulkar made at the Sydney? Anyway, point is, is that yes, that, that it all may have been. I think there's a couple of big innings that Tendulkar played at Sydney, but it was the one where Lakshman made 172, which is the, the best innings I've ever seen in the flesh, um, or the most aesthetically pleasing anyway. So that was 7.05. Daniel Vittori Mm. He took 705 international wickets. But I don't remember Alan really talking to me about either of those instances. And that was his only clue. It could be something that probably is something Middlesex related or it could be something, you know, obscure from the 80s knowing Al. um, Or it could be some tangential link to music. But Could it be to do with the last three wickets that Shane Warne took in his career? Uh, well, I'm just trying to think. Was he at that Ashes series? I don't think he was, so I don't reckon it will be. But that's worth in, in investigating, and I'll I'll send him a message to, to read in the morning to tell him to listen to the show and perhaps give us a clue before we revisit this on on the weekend edition. But hey, if you've got an idea as to what Alan's 705 is, feel free because as you mentioned, Jeff, on the weekend show, we're giving ourselves a lot of latitude. We we uh, we haven't quite worked out what we're calling the weekend show yet. Now that we've no. moved away from it purely being an interview based thing, it'll continue to have an interview on it. But um, now that we're doing a lot of nerd pledge, a lot of correspondence, a lot of different 
historical deep dives and we have the time to revisit numbers like Alan's and I reckon we'll do that on Saturday. I keep thinking of it being the History Channel um, a la the Tony Soprano link that I mentioned <laughs> last time. You know, the final word History Channel because we'll, we'll probably get a cease and desist if it was just the History Channel um, <laughs> even though that's a very generic thing. But, you know, maybe that's, that's, that's where I'm leaning um, but I don't know. I'm, I'm open to suggestions. So, thank you Alan. Uh, next one from Peter Lewis friend of the show as well three dollars 76 what might 376 suggest adam yes thanks peter for signing up i think he signed up just before the damien fleming live show that we did during lockdown and peter was instrumental in uh, helping us get that uh, off the ground so uh, great to hear from you on our patron page um look 376 i doubt it's going to be blocker wilson's test cap that one test match you played in the uh, 98 tour of india um I had two ideas on what it might be, though. Uh, 376 being the score that Australia made when Glenn Maxwell made his one and only limited overs century, that World Cup 2015 100 yes. against Sri Lanka. Jeff, we talked to Glenn. Oh, what a night. <laughs> well, we talked to Glenn. We, when, we, when we interviewed Glenn last, uh, or May, I think it was, in uh, in Bristol, we talked to him quite a lot about that innings and the, the embrace that he had with Shane Watson and the tears that... Mm. Uh, that, that, that followed on that day. Unfortunately, there, there are no highlights of it on YouTube. Fucking ridiculous reasons that I never quite get to the bottom of. Yeah, they're on the ICC website. That's the only place you can find them. Yes, that's unfortunate. But still, um, that, that, that could be it. Uh, and the other I had for it, Jeff, and this is unlikely, but I just want to introduce it to the mix when it comes to nerd pledge numbers. We've, we've done a lot of cap numbers. Recently, we've been talking about batting averages. We've also been talking about test numbers. So, for example, test number 376, which I must admit I didn't look up in this case, but that's come up a, a couple of times. Daniel Norcross had an mm-hmm. absolute beauty on that front a couple of weeks ago. But um, the MCC laws of the game, we haven't done that before. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought I would check what Uh, law 37.6 is and it's to do with obstructing the field and it reads very simply in the book 37.6 bowler does not get credit quote the bowler does not get credit for the wicket end quote the end (laughs) so just you know that's give it to you know hand that back hand the mic back to Ravi Ashwin because the bowlers are not getting enough credit that's what we (laughs) that's what we keep learning now does this does that law pertain to where they rolled handled the ball into the obstructing the field yes which of course goes back to one of our very first videos that's a almost final word history time here isn't it when they a long time ago one of our employers said to us why don't you two boys just like make videos for us at this at the uh, at the uh, England Australia one day as at the end of play and that's where the name the final word came from because we were did we were doing it doing it at the end of play and, and because by that stage of that Asher series all the I guess most of the big dogs had gone home and, you know, the more senior people who'd been on tour since, you know, for many months during the test matches and there wasn't many people left during the one day as, uh, and in our case, Jeff, we became pretty good pals with Maria O'Donoghue, who was the ECB at the time, uh, Director of Press Operations. He's like, yeah, sure, in their Irish distinct accent, which I won't try and imitate in hindsight, I'm saying, absolutely. <laughs> No worries at all. You can come on the field of play. Indeed, I'll come and hold the camera for you while you do your end of play videos. And she ended up filming an entire reenactment that we did at Lords in the dark when there was the Mitchell Stark, Ben Stokes handled the ball slash obstructing the field episode, which, uh, mm-hmm. if I recall correctly, the entire the entire Lords 
audience were booing as one when uh, Australia upheld their appeal to have Stokes um, off for uh, handling the ball or obstructing the field. I can't remember which one he it was. It was for, obstructing the field because it was a run-out attempt. That's right. Stark, yeah. Stark picks up the ball in his follow-through and throws it at the stumps and Stokes stuck his hand out and knocked it away from the stumps. So handled the ball would be if it's during the, the bowling, during the action of receiving the ball um, and obstructing the field was was the, the catch-all. But now they've now there's no more handled the ball dismissal. You cannot right. be out that way. The, That's right, the yeah. six The six men's test players who've been out handled the ball, um, who I once could name, but I'm not sure if I can off the top of my head. Graham Gooch, Gooch Steve Waugh, the only two I can remember. Uh, um, Mahinder Armanath, maybe. Uh, they're they're, they're immortalised um, in terms of their dismissal <laughs> because now it's just rolled into obstructing the field. But this does relate to a particular hobby horse of mine, which is that Harbhajan Singh 5G truther was robbed of a wicket in the 2000. 2001 series against Australia when he, the, the ridiculous Calcutta test um, and the way he went through that series, he took 32 wickets in five bowling innings, which is absurd. But he had Steve War bang to rights, a ball that went off the top edge, looped over Steve War's shoulder, bounced back to middle stump and Steve War turned around and slapped it away. That's so he right. was given out handled the ball, but he stopped the ball from bowling him. So Harbhajan would have had the wicket. Yeah, yeah. It was the backspin, wasn't it? It was backspinning was towards the, the middle stump yeah. and that, that that's exactly it, isn't it? So I think you get it when there's hit wicket. So let's when say hit wicket you get it, yeah. Yeah, and and I, and I felt uh, I found an inconsistency with this last week too. I'm referring back to that piece I wrote for the Guardian about the 05 Ashes and the Victor Trumpet cricket board. Brett Lee, final ball of the day of day one has Ashley Giles standing on his stumps and yet it's recorded mm. as caught behind because he must have gloved it down the leg side. I don't remember that bit, but reading back through the Crick Info um, live right. comms, he, he also did do that. But I would have thought from Lee's perspective that, I mean, uh, that's that, having somewhat out-hit wicket is far more interesting. So, Peter Lewis, thank you for your number. I'm going to assume that it's about Harbhajan Singh being robbed in 2001 <laughs> of what should have been 33 wickets in the series. And our last one for today from, from a, a duo. Now, I, th- I think from memory this is a father and son duo. I hope I'm getting that right. Uh, Tobias and Zach, who have come through with $1.18. And there was a hint that went along with that. one one eight one point one eight. I was told that it refers to the fall of a wicket at the MCG. Yeah, and and I saw that and I was nowhere with it. Uh, And I thought that maybe this could be the sort of number where I have a bit of a think before the weekend show and do it justice. But, Jeff, Mm. you've you've already uh, got a head start here. So whether we've got it quite yet or not, but you've got some ideas. Initially, I thought... My, my first thought was, was the score one for 18 in 2010 on Boxing Day when Australia got rolled on the first morning? Because I remembered that Phil Hughes made a few runs opening the batting. It almost was. It was one for 15 when Shane Watson got out that day. So we weren't quite there. But that did encourage me to go back through the scorecards and look up every opening partnership at the MCG. <laughs> Because do. because I've got a book to finish in three days. So obviously I spent my time doing that instead. And I can tell you that there's, there's a short list, but 
it's quite a good list in terms of interesting names. Jack Hobbs and Wilfred Rhodes were the first to do that, to put on 18 runs for the first wicket in 1921. I know you love getting a Wilfred Rhodes conversation happening. Possibly more interesting in terms of what we've what we've recently discussed. Well, maybe I'll come to that last. I don't necessarily have to do it chronologically. Pakistan have had a couple. Azhar Ali and Sami Aslam had one, but also Imran Farhat and Selman Butt. I'm sure there was no no nothing riding on that one, um, being an opening stand of less than twenty back in 2009. Uh, Matty Elliott and Mark Taylor put on a one for 18 against South Africa. Uh, Ian Redpath oh, I remember and that. Paul Sheehan. I, I remember you remember the, that? I, I, you remember I, I, the one for 18? I, I do. I, I remember standing up. <laughs> I, I, I remember being flabbergasted and distraught that Matthew Elliott was given out league before. It was the second innings of the um, Boxing Day Test match in, um, in uh, 1997. Uh, and... I remember distinctly uh, a man who I went on to interview last year for a magazine column standing up and declaring that Steve Randell would never umpire another test match ever again because he'd sawn off Matthew Elliott giving him out leg before for a ball that struck him on the thigh pad. Little did he know how accurate he would be in that proclamation, I say. (laughs) For for unrelated reasons. For unrelated reasons. Um, yeah, well, well, look, that that was that day, Adam, that that momentous day. Uh, Ian Redpath, one of one of Ian Chappell's favourites. You'll you'll never get through an Ian Chappell conversation without one Redders story and one Les Favelle story. Uh, so Redpath and Sheehan in '72, uh, Conrad Hunt and Cammy Smith of the West Indies in 1961, the famous West Indies series there. Had, had an 18 opening partnership. But this was the one that, that really interested me in terms of what we've been talking about recently. Now, you know, the, the, the average listener might not be overly familiar with uh, the South African duo who came through in the early 30s of Bruce Mitchell and Sid Kernow. But Sid Kernow, of course, was the player who threw the ball back in to run out Pud Thurlow, leaving Bradman 299 <laughs> not out. <laughs> in the other test at Adelaide, was it? Whatever yep. it was. Yep, so right. Sid Kerno has a link to one for 18 at the MCG and look, that's that's good enough for me, but you're welcome to keep thinking for the weekend. That's very good indeed, Jeff. Thank you to Tobias and Zach. Thanks to Al Edgar and thank you to Peter Lewis for being our nerd pledges today. As we said before, the weekend show will have a lot more patron.com forward slash the final word. Thanks to everyone for being um, part of uh, our final word crew. We look forward to talking to you on the DM slide in any time. Uh, Jeff, uh, before we go to our break and then our interview, we've got one more important segment. It goes a little something like this. That Jim. Sachin, Sachin. Take it away, Jeff. Let do a happy birthday, Sachin. The segment where you get to find out who Sachin Tendulkar has wished happy birthday to on the internet this week. And we are, you know, obviously the trends are emerging as we're studying who gets a happy birthday from Sachin. Any current player in, in around the current Indian setup seems to get one, whether or not he's spent a lot of time with them. So Yuzvendra Chahal, the leg spinner who played in the World Cup, got a gong this week, a, a big moment for Yuzi, who's, who always seems like 
someone who shouldn't be playing international cricket on the basis of being built more like a jockey. Um, uh, it's always kind of a surprise to see him out there, particularly batting, but, you know, he's able to do things with the ball. Yeah, uh, Shakira said hips don't lie and wrists don't lie either, the way that he gets that okay. wrong and uh, spinning back towards the right-hander. That'll guarantee him a place in any 11, uh, any white ball Indian 11 for some time yet, I reckon. The next is an example of, uh, I, th- I think why we've ended up doing this segment is that we've always been impressed with Sachin's inoffensive blandness. You know, he's got a great facility to just be down the middle of the road on on just about everything. And so when he's messaging a cricketer, he messages them about the most obvious thing that you would message them about. So Jonty Rhodes got a gong this week and the quote from, from Sachin talking about Jonty's birthday is... Playing against a fielder like you was always a challenge, and to watch you field has always been a treat. And I, I just love the fact that he's gone, oh, it's Jonty Rhodes' birthday. What's the first thing I think of when I think of Jonty Rhodes? Good at fielding. <laughs> like, that's it. That's the only thing Jonty Rhodes is known for or is about was good at fielding. Yeah, it would be, uh, in a way, you'd think that Jonty all these years later um, would think, you know, he was primarily there as a batsman, but no one ever talks about yeah. what he did with. Bat in hand, it's always about what he did from backward point. <laughs> uh, and then just to just to have a little difference, uh, a little swerve off from the middle of the road, oh, here's a curious one. This is uh, the, the third birthday mentioned for this week was Udav Thackeray, the Chief Minister of Maharashtra. Now, if you're a keen follower of Indian history, you'll know that that's the son of Bal Thackeray, who founded the Shiv Sena movement, which was originally a, a Maharati nationalist movement that was intensely anti-Muslim and, and anti-anybody who wasn't from Mumbai being allowed to live in Mumbai. Uh, and they, they, they since expanded as a more nationwide sort of Hindu nationalist movement, um, which is still very anti-Muslim and still, still very uh, ethno-nationalist in terms of who's the right kind of person and who's the wrong kind of person. So Bal Thackeray is still a big deal in Mumbai. There's at uh, at the Vankari, the stadium in Mumbai. There's a big portrait of him at both ends of the press box, not just one. One wouldn't do. Um, which was it, it was described to me when I visited there as being a bit like having two giant portraits of Pauline Hanson in the press box at the Gabba. <laughs> um, that, that's that's the way it, it's carried across. So Don't rule it out, it's Jeff. A, it's a, <laughs> no, <laughs> true. Um, if, if, if Campbell Newman ever gets back into government. Yeah. Like, well, um, but, but, yeah, that's that's pretty gross when we're, when we're talking about uh, former star cricketers getting involved in hard right politics. Well, there you go. Sachin's just given the, the big tick of approval to Bal Thackeray and family um, as as he's done quite consistently for a fairly long time. So, you know, there's your, there's your sweet, innocent, blameless uh, former cricketer, SRT. Yeah, the, the Maharashtra uh, Cricket Association also covers Pune, doesn't it? So when you're playing games. So I've never been to the Wanka Day work, rest and play um, stadium uh, before, although I plan to. I now want to go there in order to see uh, the, um, I guess, the, the, the portraits that, that I have hanging. That, that, that seems like incentive enough. So thank you, Jeff, for informing us 
of all the po- there's no one else is there that's it we've reached the end no, of the road on it. happy the birthday big, the big three that week Chahal Rhodes Thackeray the um yeah the big you know they, they get stuck in a in a lift with that trio well very good so that means Jeff we've it's only taken us what is it I'm looking at my clock here it's taken us over an hour to get to this stage but we've reached the end of part one which means a breather and then into our discussion with Warren Dutram. Jeff, through our Zoom screen right now, I can see in your hand something that looks the size of about a credit card. It's got a clip on it, which can go on your belt. It's the Zolio at last. It's not an onion. It's not an onion. I've got it in my hands. I've got I've got the Zolio in my hands. I've got. The, I, it looks so it's, good. It's, you know. it, it looks fantastic. Tell us all about your new contraption and tell us what you did today. What 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 did I do today? I set up the account so that I can now text or email any person from anywhere in the world at any time. Top of a mountain, bottom of the sea, whatever. Ain't no mountain high enough. Ain't no <laughs> valley low enough. Ain't no river wide enough to keep me from texting you. So, and, and I, I did text you, Adam, actually. You did. Um, I, I started firing off Zolio messages and uh, it works beautifully. I, I got it out of the box. I think credit card size works in terms of area. It's more like, uh, if I can say this in, in the modern era, a pack of cigarettes size in terms of right. width. So so what what is it? All right, it's a box. Yeah, it's a box, a little box you can carry around with you that lets, lets you text people from anywhere, even if you don't normally have phone reception there because it does it off satellites, which is like magic. So it sends it 16,000 kilometres up into space and then back down again to the phone of the person you want to connect. And and here are my observations from pulling this little device out of the box. It's uh, very water-resistant and dust-proof because all of the ports on it are sealed with um, rubberized, um, what do you call them, prongs, bits, pieces. It, it has a button on it, which is an automated button, which sends uh, a check-in note to a nominated person, uh, which at the moment I've made myself so I can check in with myself. But, you know, if you, if, if you want to be able to be somewhere without having to, you know, type out and send messages or whatever, you, you press this little button with a tick on it and it will send a note with your exact GPS location to to your nominated people to say, all right, I'm alive and I'm here. Sounds like your safety word is <laughs> you press that button. Yes. <laughs> yes. As long, once the message comes through, um, just, just, just loosen the collar a bit. And then it's also got this little hatch where you can pull the hatch up and there's an SOS button, which is when things go really badly wrong, I guess. Um, where you, if you hit this, it will send an SOS message not just to a couple of emergency contacts but also to a worldwide emergency response team and it will send your exact GPS location so that they'll be able to dispatch an extraction team to come and, and find you and pull you out of wherever you've fallen into a mountain crevasse or like you've got your trolley stuck and you can't get it uh, into the car. Well, that literally happened to a friend of mine who, who slipped down the side of a mountain once and uh, fell, I think from memory, about 200 metres and thankfully he was able to fashion a, uh, fashion a a um, a bright uh, he was able to basically get a reflection off a mat which was picked up 
and thus found down the side of a mountain two days later. But had he had the Zolio, this would have been a far more straightforward process. He wouldn't have needed to get a helicopter right. to come and winch him to safety. It would have been, um, it wouldn't have been a, a story. It wouldn't have been anything. He just would have been home and safe that night at dinner had he just had the Zolio with him. So there yeah. is a fun element to it about being able to speak to people. But also, if you are adventurous, you do like to go hiking or climbing or whatever it is, it, it seems like a, it has a good safety element to it as well. Yeah, so it's the the exact GPS thing helps a lot because it means that they can just come and find you and pick you up. Um, and then the other thing that it does is you put the Zolio app on your phone and then it connects your normal phone to the satellite network as a conduit for emails and texts so that you can, anyone in your contacts who you've got their number or their email address, you can send them a message on your normal phone and it will be satellite transmitted through this device if you're out of range of of normal phone networks and if you're in normal phone network range it will just use that so that it doesn't uh, end up using up any of your quota of satellite messages while being in, in the middle of town so that's the combination of things which is pretty freaking nifty when you put it all together and when you think of the number of times that you're stuck out of range somewhere and you go you just really need to get this one bit of information through to somebody and you can't do it from now on if you've got one of these rolled into your sleeve bruce springsteen style you can do it uh it's at zolio.com z-o-l-e-o.com and then you will get your own little nifty box in the mail. The unboxing process was it was quite pleasing, on par with a sort of iPhone unboxing or something. It felt good. Um, it was it was very self-explanatory. It didn't take long to figure out. So uh, go and look them up and see what they can do for you. This is Felix White, and you are listening to the final word pod with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. They hit it out an honorary. This is the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, and we're really pleased to have with us the now long-term chief executive of Cricket Island, Warren Dutram, into his 14th year in the job, and we thought it would be a good week to get Warren on the show because your team are in England right now in the biosecure bubble at Southampton where they'll play 3-1 day internationals against England later this week. Uh, Welcome, Warren, to the show. Thank you very much indeed, Adam. Good to be here as always. A year ago, I remember spending some time with you at Lords. It was a year last week when uh, that famous first test match for Ireland at headquarters, of course, a ground you had plenty to do with in your former career when you were working at the ECB and the ICC and so on. But um, to be back there in that capacity last year and, of course, all those social media clips that came up the other day from one year on, um, what are your memories of that week or those three days at Lords, especially the first day when Ireland go, and go on to bowl England out for 85? Oh, it was, um, you know, in many ways, um, Adam, it felt like the culmination of or the physical representation, embodiments of almost everything that um, everyone in Irish cricket had been working towards. It was uh, in that format of the game, Test cricket, at that venue, Lords, against that opposition, England. It just seemed to embody everything that we had been striving towards uh, over those years to say, wow, my God, we're really here. And um, myself and colleagues and, um, and people I work with were, which is in fact the same thing as colleagues, were in fact all sitting there together <laughs> in um, uh, watching this incredible moment unfold. And uh, uh, our incredibly hardworking media manager, Craig Easdown, said, look, they want to interview you in the, uh, in the 
media centre at lunchtime uh, of day one, which of course is one of those double-edged swords. It could have been, who knows whether it could have been the shoe on the other foot and Ireland potentially staring down the barrel of England at a hundred plus without loss or um, having been skittled out. But no, it was absolutely the opposite. And about midday, quarter past 12, I, I went up to the went up to the media centre and I was standing at the back of the commentary booth watching this um, these wickets continually skittle and um, I was there with uh, Nasser Sain and uh, Bumble and uh, Ian Ward and sort of shaking my head and they're all turning around and looking at me going isn't this quite special I'm, I'm obviously paraphrasing in terms of the language and um, I'll give you equally paraphrased language back going yes it really is quite special isn't it um, <laughs> it was uh, it was an, an extraordinary moment and the excitement as I said just being there the noise there was a different Buzz. Anyone who's been to Lords numerous times, there's a real there's a real hum that goes around the ground on the on the sort of a first day of a Test match. But with the Irish crowd there, it was something different. There was something slightly more, I suppose, upbeat, up tempo. The buzz was um, was palpably louder. And of course, um, as those wickets kept skittling, it became louder and louder. So. I was sitting there um, grinning like an idiot during the lunchtime interview with David Gower um, next to um, next to the great Kyle McCallan, and we were just we were thinking, does this get any better? It's and for it to to have launched in the way it did, you know, it wasn't just like it would have been wonderful just to get there and play a, a sensible, sober days test cricket, but but to have it kind of just go off in the way that it did, where you knew that everybody around the world was talking about your team on that day as well. Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. Look, it was um, it was fantastic, but I'd, I'd be honest with you, what was perhaps even more satisfying was that following day where we were obviously we then got into bat you know we we you know we did extremely well and then I just remember that when it came to England's innings and obviously they then began to fight back and it was that application the players showed the accuracy of the bowling the desire not to get the head down when it was about 105 degrees in certainly the hottest conditions I've ever experienced in Lords and it was the ability to fight back and give ourselves a target to chase in the final innings that I think was it wasn't just a one hit wonder it wasn't this you know extraordinary explosion of wow this could have happened to any team at any time just being in the moment with uh, Tim Mercer bowling at his home ground making the ball go do everything it was the it was the ability to fight back in that second innings that really demonstrated that it wasn't just uh, I suppose a bowling performance you would find in a one-day international bit was the ability to apply and to sort of fight back and not to get the head down that I thought was probably the most notable for me part of that entire performance. Yeah, and there's a distinction there, isn't there, between the 2007 fairy tale at Sabina Park where Ireland knock off Pakistan in on St Patrick's Day, and it's you know you're there at the start of your tenure there. When I think the memory had what two staff or something like that, and yet uh, they go on to make the second round of the World Cup 2011, beating England, which is almost like miracle part two. But then this doesn't have that 
quite the same feel to it because by this stage you've got professional contracts you're a full member of the ICC you've played a test match you've been in three 50 over World Cups a number of T20 World Cups the women are by that stage semi-professional as well it's like the entire Irish cricket industry was building towards something special like this yeah, absolutely right. And as I said, it was the it felt like the the culmination of so many moments. You harken back to those previous World Cups, and you're right. You know, 2007, it was there were so many the stars aligning. Whether it was uh, a group of talented players with nothing to lose, an inspirational coach, a green tops and Patrick's Day first World Cup, add it all in, it, it sort of, um, it felt a little bit sort of magical and almost elusive and a sort of a, mm. a zeitgeist that's never going to be repeatable. And then effectively my, my journey, I, mean, I had nothing to do with 2007, I'd only been in a matter of weeks, that was all down to the incredible efforts of a, you know, a very small, talented group of individuals. And then you get this, right, what do we need to do behind the scenes to try and build this and make sure that number one, we can do it again, and number two, we can do it even better. How can we be better? And it was the, are we prepared to go back and build on sort of more solid foundations, whether that be go and get some support from um, our national sports agency, Sport Island, to say, can you fund us to be able to get a strategic consultancy to look at us in terms of our governance, our administration, our playing structures, our performance, our participation elements to say, to see how can we be better? And it was about taking the lead of that group of players who had worked so incredibly hard and were so courageous and had utter self-belief. And I genuinely felt that's what we needed to do. And I said, OK, how can we ensure that we're going to try and complement their incredible talents on the pitch to be as hardworking and as determined off the pitch to say, well, why can't we be a test nation? Because a test nation isn't just about 11 blokes wearing white bowling a red ball and um, in a in a test match it's about what underpins all of that in terms of robust pathways for both men's and women's cricket it's about administration it's about um, proper financial management it's about revenue generating structures it's about all of these things that help give you a robust underpinning none of it's particularly sexy to talk about none of it's sort of well this is going to hold the front page because we've got a governance review but <laughs> it's all this stuff which is genuinely important it's that it's that invisible referee you know if, the, if you don't see the referee hopefully it means it's been a pretty good game that's sort of how we almost regard ourselves if we can be behind the scenes creating that structure so by the time we got to 2011 and that world cup it felt like the first stage of the journey was a vindication of the decisions that we had taken to say okay well do you know what i think we are doing the right thing and if we think about the players that made the difference on that game against England and, and arguably throughout that tournament, you know, the likes of Kevin O'Brien and Trent Johnston and Alex Cusack and John Mooney. These were four guys who were earning their cricketing careers, playing their cricketing careers in Ireland. They hadn't come through the county system and we were probably only maybe two, perhaps three years into our own indigenous contract structure at that stage. And it sort of gave us the sense of self-belief that, you know what, maybe we are doing the right things. And then, you know, four to 2015, and the it was now no longer a surprise that we turned over the West Indies in um, in Nelson and that sort of fantastic another chasing 300 plus score you know it sort of gave us the sense that all the things that we were doing were now right and it was no longer a surprise that it was happening and clearly there had to be a next step.
And that was test cricket. Why? And now there you go. As usual, a very short anecdote to get you to uh, to get you to July 2019 at Lords. <laughs> um, you've talked about hard work, and you know, hard work really is the story of associate cricket. You're scrapping the whole time for recognition, for funding, for opportunities to play. From a personal point of view, you've been doing this for 14 years. What is it that makes you want to take on a job like this, which is which is so much more difficult than working at one of the big boards where you've got the funding, you've got the money, you've got the opportunities. What is it that made you want to go in and scrap and not do that, but keep doing it and, and keep representing Ireland year after year? Well, that's a good question. Uh, you know, um, if I think back to the previous jobs that I've done, um, my first job in cricket was the 99 World Cup. I was um, one of the event project officers. So, you know, it was the that job had never been done before. It was something that we were building. And then when I joined the ECB, similarly, there was, um, I think I, I sort of joined as uh, marketing communications. And once again, it was a new job. And then became the first event manager. Once again, it was a new job. And then ICC became ICC's first event manager. Um, I was in fact the second um, second CEO at Irish Cricket, but it felt at each stage along this career journey, it's almost felt like being at ground level and having the opportunity to build something and shape something. And whereas with those previous roles on the event side, um, obviously the 99 World Cup had um, obsolescence built into it. You know, you're not going to get beyond the World Cup itself to go on to do anything else um, called the 99 World Cup. But with everything else, then there was, uh, you know, there was going to be an ongoing nature to it. The job in Irish cricket, it almost felt heaven sent. Good Ems, are you seriously telling me that there's a job out there that allows my wife to live in the same village in which she grew up working in cricket? And I sort of was able to move into CEO jobs. So there was a lot of personal relevance and personal motivation for me to do this, not least the career opportunity of having left ICC. I'd worked with Irish cricket before on two occasions. In fact, in the 99 World Cup, one of the venues I looked after was Dublin, that West Indies-Bangladesh game um, in May, I think 13, that famous photograph of Clive Lloyd swaddled in lots of blankets. So I would have been a couple of feet to his left. And then again in 2005, the ICC trophy, when my in a new hat of ICC, I was working with Irish cricket then. So I'd had a sort of a long look at them for a, um, a long period of time. And I just love what I saw. I love this degree of passion, determination, desire to punch above the weights on the world stage. And, you know, that was so evident when I saw that group of players in 2006, the end of 2006 and the beginning of 2007. And, you know, the fact that the Irish obviously had got to the World Cup by that stage was clearly something to build on. Of course, I mean, God, I'd be lying if I said, well, of course, I clearly realised that we were going to get through to the Super Super 8 stage and um, we were going to turn over Pakistan and Bangladesh. Of course not. But why not? If you if you have a belief and and hope in a group of players and what we saw, it, that's what that's what drives me. And there's one other thing as well, Jeff, that I fundamentally also believe people are reasonable, and that 
There's only so many times you can keep putting the argument on the table, keep proving the point at which becomes clearly unreasonable to keep saying no, 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 at which point you begin to expose the arguments for the fallacies that they are, which is, well, um, you said that we needed to do this. We've now done it. And by the way, we've now done it three times. We're not saying we now deserve test status or full membership. What we are saying is give us a bunch of criteria and we will hit it. Because otherwise, if you're not demonstrating that there is an opportunity for members to progress, then the sport isn't embracing meritocracy, is it? It's a fantastic point. I mean, that's exactly what happened in the build-up to 2018 when full member status was granted. And of course, the, the famous week at Mallet. 17 rather, but 2018 where the first test match was played rather at Malahide um, against Pakistan. And look, there's that really positive uplift there. Of course, last year we've already talked about Lords, but part of the reason we wanted to get you on today is that it's not as straightforward in 2020. You've got to scrap again. I mean, the financial situation is plain for all to see. I mean, you've you've talked about it publicly, the fact that you've lost a major sponsorship as recently as a couple of weeks ago with Turkish Airlines, uh, the fact that um, you were wrapped up in um, some cyber theft at one stage or another there with some money that went missing through no fault of the organisation either. I mean, no international men's fixtures as planned at the first half of the year because of COVID-19. I mean, these are tough yards again for Cricket Island after having gone through such a period of prosperity. You're back in the back in the scrap again. I suppose it keeps us honest, Adam. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. Um, yeah, look, it's uh, there is never a dull moment. There's no doubt about that. You know, there's it's the old cliche, you know, the, the Harold Macmillan. Well, what 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 happened? Well, it was events, dear boy. You know, there's a um, there's there there are so many things that you 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 have plans and you want to put things into place. You could never have envisaged that this kind of thing would happen. You're right. Last year, you know, the end of the end of 2018, we had you know we had a broadcaster who'd who'd fallen over or hadn't paid us for a long period of time. That led to huge cash flow issues. Beginning of 29, we had a broadcaster. Unfortunate that fell over 24 hours before our our season starts, which means therefore there's no chance to replace that broadcaster. We've 175 grand nicked in cyber theft. I know we're in good company there. It happens to huge businesses all over the world, but uh, it was a much bigger dent in our smallish finances. And then um, and then of course you know wind the clock forward another um, six to nine months, and and COVID has come along. I suppose if I was to try and look at that silver silver lining i think if our business was weaker if we had less robust structures in place less talented people behind the scenes less talented people on the pitch i think we would have cause for concern this is god please don't take this as anything in in a degree of arrogance but i'd like to think that what we have done is we focus so hard in working on our structures, trying to make them as robust as possible, that we're in a position to withstand the headwinds and the shocks that we've referred to. God, I mean, that 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 feels like it's an invitation to disaster, doesn't it? But the <laughs> fact that we have withstood some of those fairly horrible, really frustrating, you know, at a human level as much as anything else moments, I think gives us comfort that I can tell you it's like that's a bit like Apollo 11, you know, where the guy who's um, who's the mission commander says, God, this could be the worst day in NASA's history. He says, no, I think this is the, this could be the best day in our history. Why? Because they've had such a horrible moment, but they've somehow managed to get to the end of it 
and they're still standing. They brought the, you know, they managed to get to the end of the year in a shape whereby, do you know what? I think we could make it to the end of the year as a business. We've maintained Touchwood relationships with our players. We've maintained relationships with our uh, with our key members who are our provinces. Um, we've managed to please Touchwood, maintain relationships and maintain our staffing complement. Yes, there's been some pain along the way. Of course there has. But if we can get to the end of the year still standing as a business, we can have a degree of visibility at this moment over the next fortnight or so that no other Irish sport is going to be able to have because we're going to be the only international team out there from Ireland playing on the international stage and we'll be doing it obviously with uh, clear blue water with any other cricket going on around the world you know it gives us a degree of comfort that you know what there's there are still reasons for us to come out swinging and we all firmly believe so much in this project called Irish Cricket that listen if um, if we don't believe in it I'm in the wrong job but um, I do believe in it and I think um, I think there are a lot of people out there who do believe in Irish cricket and each time we're out there on the on the world stage and each time we get a shock and we get to the other end of it it gives us comfort that we're doing the right things you've got this great week coming up where you're, you've got these three one-dayers against England, as you talked about. It, it's your first go in the new one-day Super League, that structure that they've set up there. You're doing England a favour as well because you've got to have your players do the isolation to go over and play and, and to come back and, and all the rest of it. At the same time, the way that it looks to us is the setup for the Super League is basically freezing Ireland out of the next World Cup and who knows what the structures will be for 50 over World Cups after that but the 10 team World Cup effectively keeping most of the teams besides the usual suspects out does it stick in your throat a bit can you in, enjoy the week while still sort of knowing that at, at the back of your mind or what's your position on that yeah look I mean just to uh, just to comments on one thing you said there Jeff look I wouldn't necessarily regard it as doing ECB a favour I mean look it's no one's going to say that the fact that we're here isn't uh, I suppose in a way you know ECB's been very open about their financial issues and the extent to which their broadcasting revenues are you know a disproportionate element of their of their income but I can tell you there wouldn't be a single member of the Irish squad who feels somehow people ought to be saying thank you to them they are they couldn't be happier <laughs> to be in England playing international cricket you've probably heard Andy Balburnie and the national coach saying God we're so pleased that we're actually here playing cricket but look the one thing I'm not going to be is inconsistent with the views that I've had for years about um, the extent to which I um, believe a 10-team World Cup is completely wrong. I've never believed in it. I think it's exclusionary. I don't believe that two positions or two positions for the other 97 members of world cricket through a qualifying tournament pathway, World Cricket Leagues, qualification competition is ever going to give, um, uh, is ever going to see anything other than full members um, participating in it. I don't think we're ever going to see an associate member coming through into the World Cup anymore if it stays 10 teams. I think it's um, probably going to lead to a situation whereby the majority of associate members are now probably going to think, why would we bother to focus on a format of the game that is that long, that expensive, if there is probably zero chance of us being part of a World Cup? I can tell you that, you know, in a, in a situation, particularly post-COVID, where it's going to be even more difficult 
for members lower down the chain to attract commercial funding, which means people are going to have to make choices. I can't see why many associates are going to want to focus much more than on T20 cricket. And I'm talking even about some of the higher ranked associates. Um, this might be heresy and you, might, you may not even hear some of the higher ranked associates like the Dutch and the Scots say it, but if you're going to have to make decisions about where you focus your resources, it's tough to think that it, it should necessarily be on a format that is extremely expensive to run, particularly in countries such as in Northern Europe like ourselves where the weather isn't always 100% guaranteed. And I look back to the World Cup last year, which of course... You know, if you're looking to measure the World Cup in crowds and in uh, viewing figures and in exciting cricket, and maybe arguably, you know, it's difficult to say, well, those aren't three pretty enormous measures by which they ought to be um, looked at. But it, it just feels to me as if it's not a World Cup. It's only a World Cup really in terms of name. It's probably more like a glorified champion's trophy in terms of the, the quantity of teams that are playing in it. I heard discussions, I remember that game at the Oval where Sri Lanka beat England and there was talk of it being an upset. I sort of smiled to myself. Mm. How can a former World Cup winner beating a team that hadn't yet won the World Cup be clarified or quantified as an upset? You know, I don't think you're ever really going to have any giant killing exploits in, in the event anymore simply because there won't be any teams to do any giant killing. I think um, it's probably going to leave the, um, leave the world moving much more towards, um, or the associate world, hoving, cleaving much more closely to T20 cricket. And I think that will be uh, to the detriment of ODI cricket in time. And I sort of see that in some respects as an issue for Test cricket as well, as far as Ireland is concerned. World Test Championship has nine teams in it, certainly for this cycle and, and the cycle after it. Along with Zimbabwe and Afghanistan, Ireland have the ability to play Test cricket, sure, and the three times you've done so have been wonderful. But when when it costs 500,000 euros to host a Test match, as it is, as you've reported in the past, um, I mean, there, obviously there was a Test fixture cancelled this year because of financial reasons before COVID. I mean... Where's the place of Test Cricket for Cricket Island when you're not included inside that structure? I mean, are you still litigating the case to the ICC that the only way forward here post-2023 when um, the, the, the current uh, cycle completes, so there's two rounds of World Test Championships already locked in with broadcasters, but after that, whether there should be a second division? I mean, and how persuasive uh, have you been able to be in mounting that case? Or do you think it's a foregone conclusion that effectively nine teams will play serious test cricket and you'll get the occasional team that might come through when preparing for England and that's your lot? You know, if I was to rewind to the decision to create a nine-team World's Test Championship and three teams outside of that, I still would find it difficult to argue that Zimbabwe, Ireland and Afghanistan should have been automatically included in the World's Test Championship and in the first run. And I think because I think the, the rationale still holds. And of course, we were making decisions, you know, at the very start before we knew how Ireland, Afghanistan would fare in the test format. And I haven't included Zim there because they were they were, you know, they've been playing it for 20 years. But sorry, 30 years nearly. But I was... Um, I still think the reasons for those three teams being outside are probably largely right, i.e. if history has, to has told us anything, teams immediately parachuted into playing test cricket on, you know, five test or three test series against the big boys, you're going to be hammered. It's going to take you years, if not decades, to be competitive. And I think if you're setting up a competition with context, 
I think it probably would have impacted the credibility of that competition if you were going to set up two or three teams that effectively it's the Premiership versus League Two. Um, I, I think that would probably have been, um, I think, unfair. And I, I suspect I, st- I still stand by that call. The question is, at what point do those three teams get included within a World Test Championship? And I think the point that you do that is the point at which those teams have had enough opportunity to be able to demonstrate their ability. Three games, look, we played, I think, exceptionally well. The first was because it was the first. The third, because it was at Lord's and it was a moment and it was exciting. It's going to be that day in, day out um, in Asia in December, January, February, playing on a a dusty service in, in Hyderabad. That's where it's going to be tested, where our players who are used to English, Irish seeming conditions are going to be finding themselves unable to be able to, you know, take the 20 wickets. That's the point at which we haven't had sufficient experience to know whether or not that's what we're going to be able to achieve. So where do we go from here? What are the two constraints for Cricket Island? One's money. There's no point getting around it. We receive half of what Zimbabwe receives in terms of a uh, in terms of our full member distribution, and that's the case that we've argued. It's not we want automatically to be included in the World's Test Championship. What we want is sufficient money to be able to play the format so that we can demonstrate. Look, we're a Test nation now. We want to play it, but we can only play it if we can afford to do so. The second consideration also deals back to money, and it's the fact that um, we have so far been unsuccessful in advocating to the Irish government that we should have a permanent stadium. And that's the, that's the piece of the jigsaw which is equally important in us being able to not spend half a million quid on temporary infrastructure like stands and a, having to build a pavilion at Malahide and having to build a, a temporary media centre plus scorers areas, blah, blah, blah. Those are the things which significantly, the two key considerations to us holding back. We've identified a brand new or a a sort of a location for a new stadium. And probably just as we were going to get momentum in that, um, guess what happened? The same thing that began our conversation, which was which was COVID. So there's always something that, that gets in the way of us being able to do that. But look, don't get me wrong. Um, we definitely didn't think it was going to be all roses, champagne and red carpets from the 23rd of June onwards, i.e. 24 hours after we achieved full, full, um, full status. And I did a speech in Dublin that said, in 24 hours time, we're not going to have embedded long-term domestic structures in three formats. We're still only going to have an inter-provincial structure that's uh, at that stage, five seasons old. Um, We're not going to have a permanent stadium. We're not going to have long-term commercial structures, multi-million. We're not, we don't have any broadcast relationships yet. All those things take time, they take years. And that's why, you know, one of the key things that I want to do is to make sure we can address some of those elements. If I'd walked out the door the moment we got full membership, I would have been doing Cricket Island a huge disservice. Sorry, that sounds incredibly conceited, doesn't it? Um, But I still felt the job was, you know, was only half done because it was all about, right, 
next stage has to be the stadium. Now it's the FTP. Now it's the broadcast relationship. Now it's establishing long-term structures to help build the capacity of our provinces so they could be similar to Australian states and um, uh, English counties, develop their capacity in terms of administration, in terms of programs and funding and staff. Those are the things that are, you know, as I said, the unsexy stuff behind the scenes, but which are very important. The other issue on your plate at the moment is players and, and retaining players, partly with Brexit and partly just with funding. So you've got Tim Murdo, who obviously you spoke about earlier as being the, the hero of that first day at Lords, but who you'll be losing in the 2020, um, well, in, in the sort of subsequent season. You've got Kim Garth, who's going to play club cricket in Australia and thus has had to give up her semi-pro contract there with the women's team. Uh, you've, you're looking at other players from overseas who might be able to qualify through passports, so there's still that that sort of option of, of talent scouting uh, for, for players in, in other cricket playing countries but that's a, a big issue for you at the moment as well isn't it yeah it, it's one that we felt we'd put behind us a number of years ago but it's it's a different reason this time um that was about the i suppose the, the the dual nationality the potential for somebody to play for ireland and then to play for england the following day having built up their uh, their qualification this is a specific full membership issue which is it's going to have to step out for a number of years which um for those cricketers who are who are looking at those options that obviously wasn't something that they were going to be able to do in a way, the decision about allowing two overseas players in, uh, I think, the county championship now, um, that's, uh, I'm not quite sure particularly how that may have complicated the issue or not. But I think for someone like Tim, that was very much, uh, um, you look at things on a case by case basis. Tim, obviously, 37th, 38th year, you know, for him, that was, where was it? Was he going to give up Middlesex for his last one two god knows how long he could go on for he's such a talent you know and he's so fit kim obviously was for us i suppose there are a number of other considerations around that because we weren't playing cricket you know kim hadn't played international cricket for for ages you know she she was desperate to get there she's incredibly talented obviously we're desperately sorry to lose her but i guess all we can do is pretty much try and replicate the same journey that we did for our senior men going back about 10 or 11 years now which is how can we say we can put in place the cricket structures for you on field and off field on field we're coming into a World Cup qualifier, we hope, in advance of the Women's World Cup. It, we think um, still um, it's still currently happening in um, February, March in New Zealand. And from which that will determine which teams will be in the ICC Women's Cricket Championship. And we've been working with Sport Ireland in the last um, 12 to 15 months to say, that is our target. If we're looking at a strategic tar performance target for women's cricket, that's what it is. It's get into the women's ICC Cricket Championship. Why? Because that'll immediately address the issue of a consistent quantity and quality of cricket for our women's senior international players. So they're not just going to be contracted players who are just going to be pitching up to a training camp or training yeah. facility every day with not much cricket to look forward to. And when you've done that, right, there's the cricket to look forward to. How are we going to get ready for that? Well, it was a, a sort of a, an 18 to 24 month lead in from 2019, early 2019, in consultation with Sport Island, which was let's put in place six women's contracts. 
This year, obviously, it would have been six, but Kim's gone. Um, but we've supplemented that with, um, you know, a number of non-retainer contracts, 11 non-retainer contracts, which are providing that, I suppose, that holistic support in terms of uh, physical, tactical, mental, healthcare, lifestyle, nutrition, psychology, all of those areas to try and support them. And of course, when they play, it'll be um, match fees and it'll be loss of earnings, all those kind of things to try and right. exactly so, where we so started for the men. That's giving them access to the facilities that the other players have access to without play, paying them a retainer base. Is that how that works? Exactly, exactly. And look, would we be doing that if we if we hadn't, I suppose, lost about 30% of our funding this year? Yes, I suspect that would have been the case. But our funding this year meant that actually almost just being able to retain the contracts that we did from last year and then supplement that with additional is gives us hope that we can still maintain at least that fitness and hopeful competitiveness as we go into the qualifier at the end of the year. Yeah, women's cricket, it's, it's becoming a, a little bit of an arms race from some countries. I mean, obviously, uh, there's Brazil going full professional already. Thailand were the hurdle that Ireland weren't able to overcome to reach the most recent iteration of the T20 World Cup. Thanks uh, for bringing that up. In, in Australia. So, sorry about that, Warren. I can't help but mention that. Um, you see, from our perspective, we want both teams in there. I mean, why is it that it's only a 10-team World Cup? Indeed, in 50-over cricket, it's an 8-team World Cup. So, yes, there's the possibility that Ireland might do outrageously well at the qualifier later this year and qualify. It's unlikely, though. Let's be realistic. So, that, it's another tournament where Ireland's women are being excluded from. And the Kim Garth example, on one hand, there's this pathway that you've steered the men through which has gone from semi-pro to pro to full member status to test cricket it's a wonderful story but it might be a fraction more complicated than women's cricket because a lot of other countries are on a similar path and and might be going there quicker due to government support so is, is there sort of you know and the growing pains are clear to see with Kim Garth I mean it may not be quite as straightforward with the women's what I'm what I'm angling at yeah and look it could well be if you think back to the, the Irish men's situation back in 2004 five and six and Seven, you know, when uh, Ed Joyce and Owen Morgan made the decisions yeah. they did, it's because the structures weren't yet in place. Uh, but they have to make a decision, and I completely understand why they did what they did. In a short career span, they've got to make decisions which are going to be in their interests, in their interest to be able to, um, I suppose, perform and and allow their talent to flower the way that it ought to um, and we can't blame them for that it's going to be our job to make sure that the next time the opportunity or there's a player who's going to be making that decision they're thinking well actually I've got some cricket to look forward to in the world women's cricket championship we've got a qualifier that's coming up I agree are the numbers in the team we'll come back to that in a second is there a way that I can be paid to, um, or to, so I can feed myself while I'm performing in order to be able to get into these games? Those are the things that we are trying to put in place. As far as the number of teams are concerned, I know that from a, a strategic perspective, um, the ICC is looking at that. 
I've been involved in some of those conversations. I sit on the ICC Women's Cricket Committee, so I know the right conversations are taking place, which are trying to balance the marketing of the game versus um, not excluding the way I believe it is excluding in the um, in the 50-over game in men's. To be clear, I think there probably is a larger gap between, let's say, Australia, India and England at the top of the men's game and the likes of, say, Ireland, Scotland, Netherlands in the men's game. I think there's a much smaller gap between 1 and 12 and 13 in the men's game than there is in the women's game, where I think it is much more significant. And it's simply that um, it's simply that progress of professionalism. As you said, you know, there's that arms race where you've got a lot of the larger members now have a lot of their um, senior women on full-time contracts playing in the Women's Cricket Championship. Full-time cricket in 50-over and 20-over cricket. Our players are hardly getting to play any international cricket. So we're trying to give them as much of an opportunity to participate as possible. And we may well have to accept that if we do get into the Women's Cricket Championship, Championship. Um, it's going to take us a while to be competitive the way we want to, particularly having lost a number of our senior players. We lost hundreds of caps at the end of um, 2018 with the retirement of four of the legends of the Irish game. You know, half of them, their brother is now the national women's coach. Um, so, you know, we've got someone who has got his ear to the ground, not just within the club game and able to see what's possible, but also in terms of understanding what the international game looks like. What a wonderful family, the Joyce family. Uh, yeah, when I was there last year with you for a few days, Warren, uh, you were in the middle of a, a, a consultation process with women's cricket about participation. And I suppose that that's where it all comes down to, isn't it? We know that there's sort of a rough calculation on how many women and girls are playing the game and how it relates to how their team performs. And I suppose, again, the model for that is the men, isn't it? And you see even this week, the, the team that you've taken to England includes players like Harry Tector and Josh Little. Harry did well yesterday. I saw in the game against the Lions. 20 years old, he'll, he'll probably play this week, I'd imagine. Josh Little, who made his international debut last year against England in the one day at Malahide and picked up four wickets, left arm seamer, 20 years old. Even Lorcan Tucker, who's 23, he'll probably be the keeper, first choice keeper for a, a, a long time into the future. And, and, and Jeff alluded to it before, but it doesn't preclude Ireland from going passport shopping to be crude. I mean, you've got, the, you know, the ability um, to do that with, with grandparents and have, have done so successfully in the past. Look no further, of course, than the than the great story of, uh, of, of Tim Murta. But this week you, you might have a, a, a new member join uh, the side having played for Ireland A in Curtis Kampfer. I think that's how you pronounce his name. He played South African under-19s. That's quite an interesting tale. How did you nab him? Um, well, actually, um, we have uh, our performance director, Richard Holdsworth, has got his, um, you know, he's got his network of people around the world. And, you know, at the end of the day, there's uh, a lot of people know each other. A lot of the agents, player agents and players know each other. There's just a network of people out there. And I, I guess Curtis's um, story, I wouldn't claim to be an expert on knowing him and knowing his, his background background as his story but I do know that we do have a wide network of people out there who if they feel the door is about to be close to them or they don't have the opportunity to express their talent within their home country that those opportunities do come for us you know obviously within the rules but, but I think you've highlighted something really interesting you know why did we go to use your phrase shopping for, for Tim because we had literally just lost Boyd Rankin 
So I don't think our inclination is to is to go passport shopping. And I know having you know worked closely with with Phil Simmons and then with John Bracewell and now with Graham Ford, these guys genuinely see and believe in the talent that's coming through Irish cricket. You know, they've always given the choice between a local guy and someone who might be able to fill a similar skill set within the squad. By and large, we've, we've always gone for the local guys. And if you look at the quality and the ages you read out, delighted you did there, Adam, of some of the young guys who performed for us um, uh, earlier on in the year in January and February when we were playing against Afghanistan and the West Indies. You know, beating West Indies and Afghanistan in T20 cricket away from home isn't the easiest thing in the world to do. And we did it with some very, very young players. And that's genuinely exciting. I had a real buzz you know, around Irish cricket with a lot of um, when these performances were coming to the fore and you could see them on TV, you know, there's a real sense of excitement around. You're moving into a new era this week, really. It's Andy Belburney's team now. You've had 11 years with William Porterfield. He's been someone who's been greatly respected, I think, through the, the way he's carried himself, at, uh, particularly at previous World Cups, having that global stage, the way he's been very willing to speak his mind about Ireland's place in the international cricket ecosystem, um, as well as what he's done on the field. But And, and Andy's always sort of been there. He, he seems to have been there in the background as this young and up and coming player for years he's you know he's he's been around for a long while for, for someone who's not exactly ancient but that transition's been made it, it's been handed over to to him and he'll be captaining this week yeah you know the more i talk to andy the more um i hear him speak the more impressed i am you know he's a he's a guy um who is um he's just really stepped up to the role you know it's a you know sometimes you see um young captains who are um who are either nervous about expressing themselves in a dressing room where you know either their their, their former captain sitting there or a large number of senior players or else um you might see in a young manager someone tries to assert themselves too quickly without having developed that that degree of credibility or that respect among peers or or um, senior pros, but um, he seems to have that um, ability, that knack. First of all, um, he's got incredible credibility as a batsman. You know, he's had a he's had a really impressive um, twelve to twenty four months on the pitch. Very very commanding in all three formats of the game. He speaks incredibly well. He seems to have taken command of the dressing room um, really really impressively. And he just, um, he's also got this ability to speak actually as a human being, which might sound a faintly ridiculous thing to say, but he's not afraid to be slightly vulnerable, actually. You know, he, we've had a number of Zoom calls um, since the, since obviously COVID broke and obviously we all can't meet together as, as staff. But what we've been doing is in our Zoom calls, uh, it hasn't just been our staff in, we've wanted to get all of the players in as well, just to give that sense of togetherness and that, you know, we're all in this together. And um, we asked a, uh, we asked a uh, sort of a sports psychologist to come in and 
wasn't really to support the players because you're already doing that. It was actually to try and support the staff and sort of how you guys getting through it. And one of the things he asked was Andy just to talk about the experience that he had had in trying to cope in being on his own in COVID. And uh, he was with his family, but, you know, he was denied the thing that give players purpose, which is playing the game and being out there and expressing their talent. And um, he spoke incredibly well. You know, just wasn't afraid to be vulnerable and said, you know what? going to have bad days and it's okay to have bad days it's okay not to feel good it's okay to feel god am i ever going to get out there again and is this it and how long is this going to last and am i going to be as good as i was when i when i you know when i last strapped on the bat the, you know the the pads and the gloves and um i think it gave a lot of the staff particularly the younger staff the sense that and probably the younger players as well who may not have heard that from him that sense that you know god if the skipper says this well then you know maybe it's okay not to feel okay and um hope i'm not betraying a confidence but um you know i think that's something i've heard him say publicly anyway but it just shows a real degree of maturity and impressiveness to somebody who's not afraid to be vulnerable when they're sometimes it might understandably think god am i leader i'm meant to be this corporate titan who's um you know who's who nothing can dent him. So I was just genuinely impressed by that. Uh, Warren, I think one of the great things about Cricket Island is you guys are always an open book. Thank you so much for coming on and giving us a, a real sense of where your organisation's at at an important time post-COVID and indeed an important week ahead of these three one days. Very best of luck to the team and indeed to the organisation. Thank you very much, Adam. Thanks, Jeff. I'm Glenn Maxwell. Make sure you listen to my favourite podcast, The Final Word. This is The Final Word with Adam Collins and uh, Jeff Lemon. Uh, great to catch up with Warren. He's been fantastic to pretty much anyone with an interest in Irish cricket. He's one of these administrators who uh, who is just accessible and he gives straight answers and uh, he isn't afraid to play his shots. And maybe that's the way you need to be uh, if you're going to be an administrator in a country like Ireland where it's not a mainstream sport. But uh, And he's very humble about the, the, the contribution he's made personally, obviously with the way he was sort of um, sharing the the, uh, the the praise around there in our chat with him. But uh, he's been very important to that whole story. Uh, so it was great to get some time with him. And at an important time, we sort of mentioned that it's not quite clear um, where the next beachhead is for Irish cricket. I mean, it's probably in the women's game, but that's going to be tough as well. So they've been on this trajectory for the last little while. But um, yes, this is an important phase for them as well. It would be pretty easy in that job to be very risk averse in everything that you say and, um, and and try to be diplomatic and be quiet and hope that you would be rewarded for that. But uh, one thing that history tends to illustrate over and over again is that not many people are rewarded by those with more power for being acquiescent. Uh, so we, we wish Cricket Island luck in their pursuit to, to be able to grow the game and uh, to, to get more matches and to, to get the kind of revenue that they need to make it much more sustainable and, and a much more rewarding option for, for the players who choose to take it up. Since we interviewed Warren about 36 hours ago to when we're having this conversation now, I've 
talked to a couple of the players that came up in our conversation. So, and I quite like the, the contrasting stories they have and uh, reflecting two separate traditions, I suppose, in Irish cricket development. One is Harry Tector, who's got, you know, two brothers. At one stage, I think they were captaining the 15s, 17s and 19s. Um, he's the first of the three to make it to the top grade. He's played 20-odd T20 internationals, but he will make his one-day international this week at age 20. Um, he was the leading run scorer for Ireland in their T20 series against Afghanistan earlier this year. He made a half-century against the England Lions in their warm-up game on Sunday. So he's perfectly positioned now to go on and have a, a serious international career but um, interviewing him today uh, he found cricket kind of at school now the idea of someone finding cricket at school in Ireland 10 or 15 years ago well it wouldn't have happened you needed to have a link to the game through some other means or, or means or a family member or, or something like that um, it, that wasn't the case for him he found it through um, through playing at school which I think is just fantastic so um, he gets that opportunity and, and interestingly um, Curtis Camphor, who I asked Warren about, but Curtis, who played under-19s for South Africa, um, he went to school with Harry, or should I say Harry went to school with him. As 15-year-old boys, he went on a cricket exchange to South Africa, to Johannesburg, and he hit it off with this bloke, Curtis. They were playing cricket together. And a couple of years later, he got a message from Curtis saying, I've got an Irish passport. My grandmother is Irish. And he put the pieces together as like an 18-year-old or something like that that he might be able to play for Ireland and lo and behold a few steps along the way which include um, Curtis uh, playing uh, against the the, uh, the the touring Irish at one stage and kind of um, had that exposure to them again and he's like yeah alright well crack on let's do this and he's been on an Irish Wolves tour um, he's done okay in the trial matches and he's been named in the squad today for the first one day on Thursday so it's possible these two kids from like year nine English or whatever in Johannesburg um, albeit in Harry's case he's not South African he was just a exchanging down there but they could be turning out for Ireland in a one day international together both making their debuts it's a great story how badass is it being an Irish wolf it's much better than being an English lion yeah you know? it's, it's a, it's a, a tough name and blown up oh I'm a, I'm a lion well, we Ooh, don't even have really. that in Australia it's just Australia A isn't it we've never had a nickname yeah. attached to the, the second team Maybe Mate, that's for the best. That's because the alphabet in Australia is more terrifying than any animal. <laughs> like, just the way we say our vowels is scarier than a wolf or, or a lion. Well, there was, some, so, there, was a, there was a blab about this in 94-95. Uh, in fact, Dan Bredig just randomly sent me an article about this yesterday, as Dan does, about there was criticism at the time when Australia A started for that one-day quadrangular series in that famous summer of 94-95 that it wasn't called Australia B because... England B was their second side back then, pre-Lions. And they're like, why would you mm. call it Australia A for? Isn't Australia A, shouldn't that be the first 11 and Australia B be the second mm. 11? And that was, for a time, uh, a point of controversy around that series. But Australia A, it has remained, <laughs> with the exception of the, um, the little... Imagine that being a point of controversy. I know, I know. How Sim dull does your life have to be for that to be a point of controversy? Simpler times. I mean, I suppose we had the Caxi, didn't we, um, when yep. the CA11, um, which still exists doesn't it, when they're playing? Sometimes. I think they use it to, like, play, like, when it's not Australia A and they just want to have a, a representative team that falls under yep. the Cricket Australia banner, they call it the Caxi, when they were in the domestic 50-over comp for a while, mm. weren't they? Will Bazisto, Caxi legend. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the leader of the resistance. 
Uh, but Jeff, the, the the Irish team are playing England, which it's kind of uh, brushed over a little bit. But they've only played, I think, two or three one day internationals since they won the World Cup. You know, twelve and a half months ago, which is unusual. Um, they would have played more if not for COVID, of, of course. But Owen Morgan's still captain, and there's Jason Roy and uh, Johnny Bairstow and uh, you know Moen Ali and uh, yeah, a number of All others. All these players you've forgotten about completely. Yeah, these fantastic cricketers who are still some of the best white ball players in the world. We just haven't seen them play an awful lot. Uh, and then on the bowling side of the equation, two left armers have been brought into the England squad. David Willey, the unluckiest man in England last year, losing his spot at the very last minute to Joffrey Archer and Reese Topley, uh, a young fella, Jeff, you and I spent a bit of time with shit in 2015, wasn't it? All the way back at the start of his um, rise up the ranks until he played, of course, in the T20 World Cup in 2016 for England. I think he's broken every possible bone in his back since, but um, they've had a number of operations. He's moved from Essex to Hampshire, now to Surrey, uh, and uh, immediately back into England consideration. So that, that's great news for the tall left armour um, to get that second crack at international cricket after a long injury layoff. Well, they say if you're going to do something, do it properly. So if you're going to injure your back, you might as well injure all of it and <laughs> make sure that it's it's even. Otherwise, there, there might be a kink. So, yeah, those will be the, the games we'll be watching over the next week or so. It'll be interesting to see how bad the cobwebs are for the England one-day team and whether the Irish can spring a surprise in one of their rare chances to get to play one of the big three teams. So... Uh, they're, they're very keen. They're looking forward to it. And uh, we'll we'll have more to report back to you next week. We will indeed. And it's kind of cool the whole world's watching as well. I mean, the only cricket to watch will be England Island this week. And yeah, I'm looking forward to being down at Southampton in the bubble for all of that. And I'll report on all the vagaries of, uh, of, of COVID cricket when I get back from that. Indeed, I might talk a little bit about it on the weekend show. We will see. It's time for us, though, today to say goodbye and to say our thank yous as always to our patrons patron.com forward slash the final word we salute you for being part love of you. what we do we really do honestly love you if you want to be part of it you want to put a nerd pledge in you want to keep the show up and about a couple of times a week it just makes the biggest difference knowing that we have that dependable uh, stream of revenue it just it basically means we can treat it like a job and that is lovely um, patreon.com forward slash the final word it's in the show notes likewise the Zolio Zolio.com that's also in the show notes uh, take a look at one of them if you want to get yourself on the satellite phone network um, Jeff and we are blessed with uh, a wonderful team behind the scenes at Bad Producer Productions they make a lot of fantastic podcasts Dave Collins edits us uh, Jay Mueller and Astrid Edwards who run the show there um, it's a joy being part of their brand of their label and of their company. <laughs> all three of those things, which are all I, I just went for all different. of it. I just went for all of it. I mean, okay. it, it's all kind That's of like true. The fruit salad of things. Yeah, all three things are accurate. So uh, let, let, let's, let's, you know, do it in full. Why use one word when three will do? That is the motto of the final word, which is why we've gone for so bloody long on a weekday morning. <laughs> uh, God bless you for, for listening or, or whichever deity of your choice. For, if you've listened this far, you, <laughs> you're, a, you're a better person than I. Yes, I share that sentiment and I can hear directly above me in my living room where I'm recording... The good news is this, that I've made it through an entire sleep cycle and Winnie is now awake. So I'm going to go upstairs to a crying baby, so I've, I've nailed this. But it's been fun. Enjoy. It's Enjoy. been great. Thanks to everyone. 
for listening, for being part of what we do here on The Final Word. Thanks to Warren Dutram. We'll be back for the weekend edition. I'm not quite sure which interview we're having on there yet, but I'm sure it'll be a good one because we've got plenty to choose from. Until then, goodbye, farewell. I had to go about it.